Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that replaces tools like Calendly, Acuity, and X.ai. You shouldn't have to feel weird about sending out your scheduling link. Most scheduling tools put the burden of finding a time on the recipient, but SavvyCal makes it easy for both you and the recipient to find a mutual time in an instant. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and you can also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Drew Beechler. Drew is the head of marketing at High Alpha, a venture capital firm where he works with all the incubator and venture portfolio companies. I wanted to bring him on because Drew has a hand in launching 10 plus B2B SaaS companies a year. He's got an amazing look at the inner workings of developing a SaaS brand from scratch. So you'll hear about the step-by-step process for developing new SaaS brands from scratch, how to appeal to enterprise companies even as a freshly minted startup, and how they leveraged original research for marketing at Exact Target and Salesforce. All right, so to start out, I like ask my guests a question. Did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? That's a great question. I, ever since I was a kid, I've always loved marketing and advertising. I guess I didn't like really know, hmm. I never knew what marketing was, but kind of like enjoyed creative pursuits. And when I got into kind of high school, I guess like more of my first kind of love, I would say would be entrepreneurship and just kind of starting things from scratch even. And I found that kind of marketing is like my favorite vehicle to be kind of a part of that. But even when I was in high school, I loved music and I was became a musician and started playing guitar when I was like in seventh or eighth grade and had played in a handful of bands in high school. And so I'd say kind of even my first taste of entrepreneurship and kind of starting something from scratch was in high school. And I probably wouldn't have called it a startup or entrepreneurship at the time. But, you know, we basically were starting our own company and marketing the band and our Mm -hmm. albums and ourselves trying to play shows and kind of thinking back, I would say that was probably my first like example of doing marketing as a living, honestly, and absolutely loved it. And I think kind of from there, I started to kind of realize in college and things kind of more of like what, you know, the textbook definition of marketing was and kind of fell in love with it really from there. Hmm. That's funny you mentioned the bands and, uh, and music because I was sort of in and out of, you know, like church bands and stuff when I was in high school and a little bit of outside of high school and also played guitar. And uh, it was funny because I remember when we like recorded our first album, recorded it, you know, mastered it, finally got like, the final version, like something like, you know, six months later or something, and then went out to go and sell it. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we actually have to get people to listen to this thing. Like, you know, I remember we sold like the first a hundred and we were stoked. But then after that, it was like this slow kind of slog. And, you know, then we have to, we're like, okay, we need to go like, you know, book, you know, playing at other churches and like we need to do like concerts and whatever. And I was just like, I think after that, I realized it was like, whoa, this is like not the world that I want to like be in. <laughs> this is not like a, the thing for me. It was like an early lesson in marketing and how hard it was. But, but doing the whole like, you know, music marketing, if you want to call it that, is really, really difficult. Oh, yeah. That's exactly kind of how my story started too. I, started playing in the church band and kind of grew up like that's really how I learned. I just had to play, you know, a couple times a week even. And it was, you know, you're just kind of, you pick it up pretty quickly from there. And then, yeah, I think somewhere in my early kind of college years, I realized like the amount of effort and kind of work we were putting in for kind of the, the ROI 
was pretty low, though I loved like doing it, but I was just not having as much fun doing it, you know, and kind of playing yeah. in music. And so I even studied in college, actually, uh, music business and everything into music mm. publishing and royalty rights. And it kind of had many classes in audio engineering and things too. And ended up just kind of realizing that I loved it more as a passion and not kind of as a, as a full-time gig and kind of more pivoted my interest, I'd say, into kind of more advertising and kind of the creative kind of strategic side of marketing and how do you build, you know, just really impressive and kind of strong brands. And that's kind of where I would say like my interest pivot, though I still play guitar at my church right now on the weekends even and kind of uh, stay with it and love live music and, you know, recorded music. I'm a I'm a geek when it comes to kind of the production side of, you know, music and kind of producers and kind of understanding kind of how an album and a recording is kind of put together. I, I love all that kind of stuff, but yeah, I have not kind of found um, a way to kind of weave that into my, into my day job yet at least, but. Well, maybe there's some sort of a uh, recording or production software, B2B <laughs> to, to record labels in the mix, maybe sort for one of the high alpha portfolio companies, or maybe that's your own one day. Yeah. That is, that but, uh, true. yeah, it's possible. So how'd you actually break into marketing then? Like, what was your, your start? You know, you study marketing and you go through it in college, but then what was your actual kind of first experience that got you your feet wet? Yeah. And I would say my first kind of experience when I was a sophomore and junior, both those summers, I had internships with different agencies. I really was interested in kind of becoming a, you know, Madison Avenue copywriter, moving to New York even, or kind of going more of the kind of P&G, like brand manager route and kind of learning just like CPG kind of brand management and kind of marketing. And the the agency that I interned with actually my junior to senior year in college was an agency called K plus A that rebranded to Studio Science. It's uh, based here in Indianapolis. And all of our clients at Studio Science were all these tech startups and most of them all software companies as well. And I had never really thought about kind of tech marketing and SaaS marketing. I didn't know what SaaS or venture capital even was at the time, but really just kind of like dove in deep that summer and just kind of fell in love with startups and specifically even like the idea of B2B software. And like it sounds kind of like an unsexy space, but for me, I was just uh, so interested in the idea of kind of annual recurring revenue and that like a software business could sell a new customer and it's basically, you know, free cost of goods to give that, you know, new customer the product. And so you're looking at, you know, companies that their, their revenue multiple in terms of what the company was worth was like on the multiple on their revenue kind of top line versus, you know, a services or a, you know, CPG company, it's always like a revenue or it's always a multiplier on their EBITDA. And like, I was just like, this is wild. And like the impact and the scale and the speed that these companies grow at was just fascinating to me. And so I would say kind of that's even where I fell in love and specifically with SaaS marketing. And one of our clients at the agency was a company called Exact Target. That was one of the early kind of leaders in email marketing. They're based here where I am in Indianapolis. And so that experience kind of working with the internship with the agency and the internship with them led me to starting my career at a college at Exact Target and got to work in a handful of different kind of teams there. They went public in 2012. So the summer that I was kind of like interning at Studio Science, they went public and they were the first, you know, one of the first tech companies in a very, very long time 
in Indianapolis to go public and we're just kind of a shining star in the, you know, the Indianapolis tech ecosystem. And then I started at the company in May, May or June of 2013, that summer after I graduated. And then by July, we had been acquired by Salesforce for two and a half billion dollars. And, you know, what a ride that was to kind of my first, you know, real job getting to work at, you know, this publicly traded software company is getting acquired by the, you know, leading publicly traded software company in, you know, in history probably. And, you know, it was based in San Francisco, you know, Salesforce was, and I was kind of here in Indianapolis, but just got a real taste of the San Francisco kind of tech ecosystem and kind of Salesforce's just culture. And it's kind of the genius, I think, that is like Salesforce product marketing and positioning. And so that was kind of really where my career started. And kind of, I'd say I definitely just learned, you know, mostly everything I know about kind of SaaS marketing at the time and just loved, you know, my experience there. Yeah. What, what was that like? I mean, I, I know kind of some of the inside story because I used to work for a company called Cordial, which is basically a competitor to exact target Salesforce when it was part of the, or as it is today at the Salesforce marketing cloud. But I understand back then it was basically, I mean, it was a, it was a rocket ship and it was like one of the, the key examples of like what hyper growth actually is and and looks like i'm curious what it was like on the inside you know being a part of the company you know having that kind of growth but also what marketing looks like for that type of company at that stage and what you were a part of at the time yeah it was truly just like a master class in in marketing for me our cmo at exact target was a guy named tim cop who's now the ceo at terminus and he is just one of the smartest marketers just hands down you know out there and so being able to kind of work under his leadership and kind of on the team there. It's so funny when you look at even his leadership team, how many of the people have gone on to other CMO roles or CEO roles, even that kind of worked, worked for Tim and exact target is kind of phenomenal. I think a good testament to, you know, his leadership and just kind of the ability to just attract amazing, you know, top talent, but then also just to kind of groom and teach them. And so I would say, you know, we were, we were working with some of the, the smartest kind of marketers and people, and we had just such a strong brand as well. I kind of think back, it's funny because we were just so lucky, you know, a lot of the companies I work with now, and we'll get to this, but like they, they don't really have any brand awareness and they're starting from scratch and kind of getting to work at exact target where your brand was so established and strong, not only in kind of the, the market and the industry, but even just like with your own customers and, you know, there were so many people that had been former customers that had converted into exact target employees. And so it was just funny how many people loved the product and, and the culture there too it was one of kind of, I think the, the major selling points and just kind of success factors. I remember at the time, I think this is maybe not as novel now, but at the time when exact target went public in their S one filing, it was, it was very novel and unique that they mentioned their, quote unquote, orange culture is kind of how they branded, you know, the culture and what it meant to be, you know, a part of exact target and the the values and that you even had as a person and kind of what you cared about and, you know, what made someone successful at exact target and kind of they mentioned and kind of detailed that as one of their kind of key differentiators in the S1 filing was like this orange culture. And at the time that was very unique even. And I remember that and kind of thinking not only did that, you know, make me want to work for the company. But also there's just this, you know, sense of camaraderie and I would say kind of the, the culture definitely was led and like the brand of the culture too is led from 
the marketing team as well, primarily. And so I'd say kind of like mm -hmm. learning marketing from that perspective of how marketing touches just everything within the organization, you know, and Tim would be the first to tell you this too, but I, I totally agree that I think marketing is one of those disciplines in a company that has the most like gray areas around like it's, you know, border of responsibilities. And I think that's what I like love about it the most as well is that you could make a case that, you know, there's lots of things, almost everything that marketing kind of should or could be involved with from branding your culture and, you know, employer branding to hmm. the sales process to, you know, customer retention. And so you just kind of have like a bit of just holistic kind of business strategy and kind of operations input that I think you don't always get in kind of other functions. And so definitely got to see that kind of firsthand, I think at exact target in terms of just how, how kind of influential and important kind of marketing was to the company. And I would say, you know, definitely very much a kind of marketing led or brand led at least kind of company, you know, and I would say kind of that came from throughout the organization, not just kind of the marketing team, but I think that was very impactful and kind of their, success and, you know, and what kind of made it uh, so attractive to Salesforce. And, you know, it's continued to do phenomenally well, even within Salesforce growing to, you know, over a billion dollar runway within that business. And, you know, Salesforce kind of continues to make acquisitions and, you know, you're a testament to kind of cordial and up and comers who are kind of, you know, starting from scratch and kind of reinventing that space and kind of creating new, more innovative technologies. But it's, it's been really fun to kind of continue to see you know, as I've left Salesforce, just them continue to grow in a lot of the same, you know, campaigns and the culture that, you know, exact target built. still kind of living on there within Salesforce and the marketing cloud, especially. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you can remember, what were like the things you were doing that were like working, you know, or even like pioneering tactics, strategies, you know, like these days, I feel like the playbook is fairly clear and kind of straightforward. It's like everyone, you know, constant marketing, marketing is a big thing. You have demand gen, uh, you have everyone, their mom starting a podcast like this one, <laughs> but like back then, what were the things that you were doing and, and you know, what was on the cutting edge back then as well? Oh yeah. So I specifically, I worked for the content marketing and thought leadership team is what it was called exact target. And Kyle Lacey, who's the CMO at Lessonly, another software company based here in Indianapolis now led that team. So I got to work for Kyle and we had a team of seven at the time that kind of were all dedicated to content marketing. And even at that time, kind of content marketing was a new term, you know, the content marketing Institute was, uh, you know, making big just improvements in the space and kind of like evangelizing what content marketing was. But, you know, we were early on to sponsor and co-host a podcast with Jay Bear, like early in kind of the podcasting days. This is before, this is before it was that easy to kind of make a podcast and before everyone mm -hmm. had a podcast and before podcasting was seen even as like a marketing channel. Like I remember the early Content Marketing Institute surveys around, you know, podcasting being this kind of up and coming like trend and it almost seems like it's kind of a no brainer almost that people start their marketing strategy with a podcast first nowadays. Hmm. And so kind of, we were, we were getting early into kind of podcasting and then even like specifically the idea of individuals in the company, like what is like thought leadership as a whole and kind of individuals in the company having personal brands that the market and like other individuals wanted to be kind of tied to. So people like 
Kyle and we had a handful of kind of other folks on the team too that were just kind of thought leaders that basically went around on kind of speaking circuits. And that was like more or less, you know, 50 to 100% of their jobs hmm. was speaking at conferences and being kind of a thought leader and just being seen as an expert in the space and kind of their particular industry and that they worked at exact target slash Salesforce. And that was also kind of just very unique at the time. And I think even like internally in the company, people probably thought it was like an odd job and role, but it had, you know, such a massive impact on the business, on our credibility, you know, the number of people that would come back to our website or become a lead or even kind of think about our product because they had heard Kyle or somebody or Chad or somebody speak at a conference or an event was, was incredible. And then maybe the third thing I'll kind of hit on too, that was really big for us was just this idea of first party research. And I think kind of using research and data and kind of your content marketing programs nowadays is also a little more, it's not, it's not that novel, but in, in 2013, we commissioned and ran a study of 5,000 plus marketers around the country and did kind of our first and will become an annual state of marketing report. And it was everything from benchmarks to where are you spending your budget next year? What are up and coming channels? You know, where are you decreasing budget? What does your team composition look like? Broken out by geo, broken out by industry. And it was like this 60 page kind of research report and was so incredibly successful. Like, you know, we would see our competitors giving it to their customers and things like <laughs> that even because, you know, it, it was so unique in that it was information that was novel to us that only we could kind of share with the market because we had done the research and we had done the study. And then it was also like inherently valuable to the end consumer. It wasn't just kind of, you know, five tips to do X, Y, Z and kind of a lot of that kind of content in eBooks that we were also producing that kind of had a specific place in the funnel, but it was, you know, something that a marketer would print out or want a physical copy and take to their boss and say, Hey, see, this is what, you know, the rest of the marketing landscape is doing. We need to up our budget in you know, right. podcasts or content marketing or email marketing. You know, when it's, when, when that was the number one, obviously that looked good for us, but it was just kind of us sharing back the data and that was, you know, incredibly successful, so successful that we brought that same kind of idea and program into Salesforce. And I actually joined a team It's called Salesforce research that we basically took that playbook and um, applied it out to kind of the rest of the entire Salesforce kind of ecosystem of products. So doing research reports and kind of market studies, all for kind of content marketing thought leadership purposes around their sales cloud, the service cloud, data, wearables. It was, it was a really kind of impressive program and, and still exists kind of today and kind of continues on. But that, w that was incredibly kind of interesting. And we saw just, just a huge kind of driver of growth for the content marketing programs and kind of our, you know, just demand gen programs, but also just like being seen as a, a leader in the industry. Yeah, that one's amazing. I, I love that example so much because I think just inherently, like it's an amazing tactic because it's both like searchable because, you know, people might be searching for things related to different things that you commission, but it also, you know, probably brought a lot of backlinks just because I was like, oh, like, 
you know, this statistic is referenced from, you know, whatever the study was. And so it helps with your SEO, but it's also very shareable. Like you said, where people print it out or they share it around or, Hey, did you see this? Or look at that. I actually remember doing that, you know, within Slack for, for various things, you know, you read it and then it's like, Oh, look at this little interesting tidbit here. One of the things that struck me that I have a question on though, is you said that you commissioned a study. I don't know what that looks like today or if things have changed, but like, what does that actually mean? You know, like, can you go and find all these people yourself? Do you have to work with a, a company or a specific group to, to reach people? Like, what does it actually, how do you actually roll this playbook out if you wanted to gather this novel data and insights from people? Yeah. And this also looks a lot different now and it's much easier now today, I would say, even than back then. But we had someone on the team that um, was responsible for kind of the research programs. And prior to, to coming to Exact Target, she had ran research programs at Walker Research, which is a kind of larger market insights kind of in research um, company, also based here in Indianapolis. But, you know, they would do tons of customer satisfaction surveys and market insights surveys. And so she was kind of very familiar with more of the statistical side of market research. And so we ran those programs like a real market research program. You know, we wanted statistically significant data. We had specific thresholds and quotas for region and for title and to kind of to make sure that we were not, you know, only surveying our customers because we only surveyed the exact target customers. And like, it'd be so skewed in terms of, well, then obviously they all using email marketing. And so even right. we had a quote on like how many exact target customers could take the survey hmm. and you know, how many people we needed in Japan to take the survey versus um, the UK versus um, Brazil I and mean, kind of each of our like major geos that we were looking at. And so we worked with uh, a data company and kind of specifically paid for what are called panels of, you know, c consumers that are willing to take the survey we specifically wanted marketers. We wanted them to be, you know, at a certain uh, level or higher even. And so you kind of you keep kind of dwindling this down. So it gets harder and harder, as you can imagine. And, you know, we hit our U.S. number very quickly. But we were kind of constantly, we were constantly looking at, you know, where were we to quota and kind of how do we try to get more surveys in a kind of certain region? And when do we cut off the survey for that region? And so we worked with a very kind of specific provider and built out these panels. This is for the state of marketing, which was like the larger report. We wanted kind of 5,000 plus, you know, samples. And so we, we would do smaller ones as well. But kind of at the end of the day, you know, we, I say commissioned, but really the only thing kind of we like outsourced or kind of commissioned was really just working with the paneling provider to help us get, you know, people who would take the survey. And then we internally did all of the analysis and kind of breaking out segmenting by kind of geo and other kind of questions and you know b2b versus b2c companies and kind of did all the analysis and turning that into you know the insights internally you know nowadays you can do google consumer surveys which like didn't really exist at the time and survey monkey has their own kind of paneling and so you can get kind of a pretty low lift you know survey of respondents around you know a handful of questions I'd say kind of at like a relatively low lift, but these were at the time, they were massive kind of investment projects for us because, you know, we would also pay people and gift cards if they finished the survey plus kind of paying the paneling company. So, you know, every survey response was, you know, 25 plus bucks basically for us to get kind of all the way through and completed. 
And so mm. I mean, it was a massive kind of undertaking at the time. I think, you know, these are only getting easier. Um, and there's more and more kind of companies that offer this. Qualtrics is, is very big in this space too. And so I, I continue to kind of recommend to companies to do it um, and kind of think of it as adding it. You know, how, how do you at least add data to your content marketing programs or, you know, at the very minimum thinking about why was, why were the research reports so valuable? And it was kind of back to the, you know, something that the data itself like is inherently useful and valuable. And it's something that like they can't get from your competitors. And so whether it's research data or not, or something that you commission or not, I think kind of thinking about those two levers and that if your content is something that they can't get from your competitors, like it's not just a, you know, three more tips to, to build a better landing page or, or something that's kind of, you can read on 20 other blog posts, but it's just something, you know, they can't get from your competitors. And it's something that like is actually kind of full of value. You know, I think though that's what people really want to consume and engage with. And so I think kind of the same principles apply and, you know, in almost anything you're doing in, in marketing, especially kind of on the content side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That's such a great example today. You're do you run marketing for high alpha, you know, so work with a lot of the portfolio companies briefly. Could you walk me through just like the steps to getting there and sort of what that looks like with what you do today? Yeah. And so today I am the director of marketing at high alpha and high alpha is a venture studio where we're essentially kind of creating a new model for entrepreneurship that really combines startup creation and formation with venture funding. And so, you know, we, as an entity, co-found probably about five to 10 companies a year that then our venture capital fund that's bolted onto the side of that startup studio invests in those companies and helps kind of get them off the ground. And then that venture fund will also invest in companies that we don't start internally, but around the country um, and kind of all within the B2B software and kind of enterprise cloud space, which is where you and I first met at Cordial. Cordial is one of those kind of investments that we made pretty early on, actually, in the high alpha days. I want to say 2017 or 2016, maybe. And so, yeah, we've invested in 60-plus entrepreneurs around the country and started 28 companies at the time that we're talking. And we have another sprint week coming up, which is kind of our forcing function for kind of deciding what is the next new company that we're going to start out of the studio in two weeks. And so you may have... 29 or 30 companies come a month <laughs> from now. So we'll see. Yeah, that's amazing. So as I understand it, you're really heavily involved in like walking these companies through being able to sort of launch with something, having something to show the world besides the, just the product, right? The the brand, the website, the even like the name and the domain. Do you have a process or a framework or some sort of system that you work through with companies to help them bring something to the market that they can share with people? Yeah, and you're exactly right. So kind of my role is kind of, I, I oversee anything that has to do with high alpha marketing and then also kind of run what we call our new company brand process for these new companies. And so you think about, you know, what is a brand and it's, you know, the sum of all the experiences that, you know, customers and prospects and that market kind of have with your company and with your product and, you know, the companies that we're working with, most of them don't have a name, they don't have a product, and they don't have any customers either. And so we're starting, you know, literally from scratch. And so we have kind of a, our own kind of internal process now after doing this, you know, 20, 
five plus times that we kind of call our minimally viable brand of kind of what do we build and kind of launch the company with. And so similar to an MVP, you know, what is the what is the kind of smallest kernel of an idea and like assumptions you try to test from a brand perspective in order for your company to look uh, polished and kind of grown up. And, you know, my view is I really want these companies to kind of, you know, punch above their weight class and not be seen as a startup, but be able to go and sell an enterprise customer from day one. And, you know, how do we give them a brand and the toolkit um, to be able to do that? And so, you know, that starts with, we kind of have a process. We walk these companies through and starting from the naming side of things and all of the, the nuance and subjectivity that can go into naming your company. Oh man. And, um, <laughs> it, it is that one specifically is quite a roller coaster of a, you know, quote unquote process as much process you can kind of give to, to name your company. You know, we are kind of, the only thing I would stress is just that when we think about these companies, we are truly, you know, co-founders with these entrepreneurs that come in and, and start these companies with us. And so at the end of the day, you know, we're not just an agency with them. We're not just kind of providing services or, you know, checking things off a checklist, but it's, you know, we're truly a partner and trying to make kind of the best decision, not only now, but something that's going to scale and something that's going to, you know, help them long-term and be strategically valuable to the company. And so, you know, partnering with them in the naming phase, we move from naming into building out their full visual identity um, and brand, you know, that goes far beyond just, the logo lockup itself. And then kind of after we uh, finalize kind of our brand process, helping them kind of build their first marketing website and kind of the expression of the brand and messaging and more even on kind of the brand strategy side as we go through that process. And then, you know, around that kind of time as well is when we're starting to close our first few customers, the product is kind of off the ground and either in beta or, you know, kind of post beta with customers and the company is potentially starting to get ready to go raise a funding round. And so we're also kind of partnering with the companies and, and CEOs and kind of the company launch itself. And, you know, what is, what does the launch of a company look like? Is it a press event? Is it a physical event? You know, when we had in-person events, do we, you know, is there a strategy for staying stealth mode longer, you know, and really kind of like thinking through all of those and kind of putting together what makes the most sense for the business and for that CEO even themselves. And there's a lot of kind of different dependencies, but, you know, helping get the company launched, which is a ton of work, but then also just kind of provides a lot of value as they then start to go out to fundraise and kind of give them that extra credibility boost in closing more customers and everything as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to dive into to each one of those if we can. Going back to its naming, which like you said, is sort of a roller coaster and probably one of the hardest bits to, to nail down because people have opinions and different ideas about what's good and what's bad, even when it comes down to domains as well, right? Because that has to be a part of the equation is, is this name even available, or even like trademarks, right? Like what are all the things that you really consider when choosing a name? You know, are there even like things that you you know, stitched together? Like, does it start with the industry or the product? Does it start with just founder ideas? Yeah. All incredible questions. I think there, there are very, we say a lot that there are very few names, you know, naming is on a bell curve and there are very few names that like actively hurt your company. And, you know, there's plenty of examples of like translation issues, like names and things like that, that like actively hurt 
the company. But then there's like very few names that I would say on the other side of the bell curve that actively benefit your company. And then, you know, the vast majority of the names all fall somewhere kind of in between. And so really, we're just really trying to help the company not pick one of the names that's going to be damaging to the company and find something kind of in between that at least in like a little bit of a way is kind of accretive to the business. And so, you know, we think about kind of objectively, what are a few criteria that we can kind of rank a name on? One is kind of ownability. And so I think that includes things like the domain name, is a .com available or is a .com potentially acquirable, which we also kind of help with and have purchased a handful of domains over the years. But also, you know, the .com oftentimes for many companies is not attainable. And so kind of what is what what is kind of acceptable enough if it's like a great name and a really big one for us is is it trademarkable or at least are there no trademark issues because that's one of the the things you just really can't predict even sometimes too you can pick a name and launch it and then you know someone can come after you months down the road and and say that they have a case for you know you infringing on on their name that you never even knew about you know they could not even have a website or you know an online presence but it's, you know, Joe Schmoe's down the street that's kind of selling something that's very similar. And if they have enough time and energy and money to be upset about it, they can be. And so that's another thing that we kind of try to at least navigate and kind of try to de-risk as much as possible. You can never be 100%, but I've learned more than I probably ever wanted to know about trademarks and trademark process and <laughs> law over you know, the past six years, which has been which has been fun. But that's probably one of the most like frustrating, I would say, for or CEOs and things too, is because it's that part is so subjective. Hmm. And then, you know, I think we look at like phonetically is another kind of objective, like grading scale of like, is it easy to pronounce? Is it memorable? And do people know how to spell it? And so many of those, like I would much rather have a name that's like not quite as, you know, on the nose in terms of like, does it fit what your brand personality wants to be? But if people can say it easily and they can spell it easily like in the long term that's going to be so much more valuable for your company and if you can get like the dot com for it like just the the impact that those have on the business over like what the actual name is itself is is so much larger than i think people kind of think about and then probably the last criteria that is a little bit more subjectable subjective is you know how much does it fit with your brand personality and kind of the qualities that you're looking for and you know, what do you want it to feel like? And do you want it to have something to do with the product you're selling? Or do you want it to be kind of a little more ephemeral or in nature and things like that too? And so it's a, it's a really tough process. You know, we do a lot of just kind of building out word banks and consolidating and putting things into groups and then being kind of ruthless with just crossing things off. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about this recently a lot too, but I think it's in, in all things in marketing, but I think it's a, especially true in branding and, and naming is like the smaller the decision committee that you can get the better and because you can't pick a name that's going to be appealing to everyone and so you know pick a name that you or you and one other person are kind of going to rally behind and you know that's going to be more probably impactful than something that just kind of is is in the middle and is all muddy because it kind of like you know speaks to everyone or you got everyone's approval at least on it I think it's much more kind of important to be bold or different and pick something maybe that everybody loves even. Hmm, but that's right. um, generally the the naming process. And, you know, once we kind of get it down into a, a kind of finalist list, like we'll start to do a lot more work around kind of trademark vetting and 
working with trademark attorneys and trying to see if we could acquire, acquire a domain or social handles and things like that and kind of use some of those to help us kind of narrow in on that finalist list on, on the candidate that, you know, we really love and we're going to move forward with. Let's say you can't get the .com, but there aren't any trademark issues. How do you think about the domain name, .io, .co, to go with the, you know, the get name.com or the, actually, yeah, I mean, in that case, we maybe a, a version of a .com is available. You know, maybe it's try name.com or even .app these days. How do you think about that? Yeah, that, that is also a pretty controversial question, I think, and people have lots of differing <laughs> opinions, and I struggle with it, I feel like on a you know monthly basis of which one is kind of gaining momentum in the market but at least right now kind of my stack rank order is you know your name.com is definitely the best both from a brand awareness perspective and kind of memorability but also like from a traffic perspective and seo perspective that even like it does have an impact you know and i think kind of that can it can be hard to prove what that impact is, but it definitely has an impact. And you've even been through kind of domain switches too with Swipe Files and at Cordial did this as well. But kind of just even, as you just have kind of like anecdotally this switch from a non.com to a .com, like the impact you have on direct traffic and even organic search and things is kind of night and day sometimes. And I would say kind of my second beneath that is probably company name.io. And then company name.co is probably my third, but it also kind of depends at what's at companyname.com because there is a lot more likelihood when you have a companyname.co that someone could misspell it and go just directly to the .com. And so I see that a lot often too. And I think I kind of take that into, into consideration. And then I would say kind of th those are like the easy kind of one, two, three in terms of importance. And then kind of after that, it starts to get a little more subjective, but around like a getyourcompany.com company name hq.com if it is more of a mobile app or kind of specifically like an app versus like a software platform the company name app.com i think works really well but also i kind of am selective on when that makes like the most sense and then I, like i'm starting to see some companies you know like a dot so is actually kind of becoming mm -hmm. more more popular i want to say like even like a dot to like i think hopin yeah. which is you know one of the wild success stories of kind of 2020 in the SaaS world. I want to say they were like a, a .to, like originally their domain. .us even I, I kind of find as a, as a good backup in kind of the, the top space. And, and I always Zoom, kind of, right. yeah, Zoom, you know, being the one of the bigger ones to use it, who also owns Zoom.com, but everything redirects Zoom.com to Zoom.us. And I don't know if it's because of their international um, presence and that they like do use different kind of top level domains for different international presence. I'm not actually sure. Or if it's just, they had zoom.us mm. so long, like think about the headache and the architecture oh, and kind of infrastructure to like change over all of our zoom URLs to zoom.com. Right. And that's pretty impossible would be my guess. So I think I continue to kind of keep an eye on like what some of the large companies that don't have a.com, like what are they using even on like Twitter, like Slack was one of the first ones to have Slack HQ on Twitter instead of at Slack. So I think kind of like seeing, taking some of those cues into kind of what consumers, because really at the end of the day, you're trying to kind of guess how a consumer is going to see your URL and kind of a domain and what kind of credibility that builds in their mind. And so I think kind of if your business is a, 
as business buyers that are in the tech space more like .io domains are like just as common, you know, sometimes now as like .coms and but if you're trying to attract a more consumer audience, you have to take that into account and kind of think about, you know, what is the end consumer on the domain going to think and are they going to trust it or not or are they going to think it's, you know, a spam link? And so that's kind of really what I'm trying to to guess when I think about domains, honestly. So, so tricky. I remember hearing Derek and Rob talking about Drip and in the early days they had getdrip.com and then everyone would call them get drip. <laughs> They're like, no, no, it's, it's just drip, right? Eventually, I think maybe even after they got acquired, they, they ended up getting drip.com, right? That made their, their life and their branding probably a lot easier. I know for, for Cordial, like you said, we had Cordial.io and then eventually acquired.com and switched everything over. But for the longest time, even you know years after that, people would still call us Cordial.io as like the name. We're like, no, no, it's just the domain, <laughs> you know, like the the company name is Cordial Experiences Inc. If you really want to get technical here, but you know, it's just Cordial, right? But even I think there was what's the other one? Actually, one of the ones I've been warming up to, like you said, is .so .so, and even .app or just like company name app.com, because surprisingly, people are like. You know, like Sparkloop is one of the ones that comes to mind for me. Like no one calls it. I haven't heard anyone say Sparkloop app, right? Because they're like, well, oh, it's probably just Sparkloop. So in that case, like the top level domain or even like the app in the domain kind of helps delineate and make it less confusing. But for Swipe Files, like you said, it got, uh, I decided to just pull the trigger on the .com because people kept saying Swipe Files Co. And I'm like, no, no, it's just swipefiles.co. Like it's just the domain, you know? And so I was like, whatever, I just need to buy the .com, make it easier, be a little bit, a little bit clearer for people. And I think it's a worthy investment. Oh yeah. I, I say that same thing happened very often. The trouble too, like with, with top level domains is like .ly was really popular with startups for a while. It's actually a Libyan domain extension. And so a lot of platforms started like delisting .ly domains even too, because of like what was allowed and what the Libyan kind of government that controls the domain, even like what's allowed on like .ly domains. And so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind that even sometimes like the top level domain you may be using, there may be some, some ramifications and kind of future issues with it. But yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see too, if like all of the I believe Google released a lot of these, like Google released the app domain, actually they're the creators of it. And I think a number of like other kind of, what I would call like vanity URL kind of dot food and things like that, dot coach and stuff. And I, I wonder if, you know, yeah, if those will be more popular in the future, it's just, I feel like it's another thing for people to have to remember of like, mm -hmm. what's your company name and what do you do? Oh, and then like you have this weird domain or you have this weird spelling of your company name. And so I think kind of if you can reduce the number of things that the market has to remember about you in order to kind of be able to learn more about you, that's always the the best, obviously, but you don't, you aren't always at that liberty sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, I actually really like that, Re reducing the number of things people have to remember about you. And one thought too on the, the .so, I believe it's Somalia. That's actually like the country and so, it seems like people haven't had any issues with it, but like you said, that's kind of scary if a couple of years down the line, then all of a sudden gets delisted or there's some sort of, you know, issue or extra fee. I don't know. But anyways, getting, I want to move on to some of the more branding kind of like visual experience for companies. I'm particularly interested in how you think about that in relation to selling to the enterprise or even just like 
who you're selling to in general. How do you think about that kind of strategically? Yeah. In our kind of brand process, we have, and this is not novel to really any kind of branding agency, but we have a, a handful of kind of exercise, really exercises that we walk through with companies around very aspirational things around, you know, who do you want your company to be and what do you want it to sound like? And, you know, are you more of a Tesla or a Volvo and some of those kind of, you know, comparisons and then we walk kind of companies through, we spend, you know, a majority of those conversations really too, talking about the audience and kind of buyer personas and what are they expecting out of your brand even, you know? So you may love the Tesla brand and are like, we want our company to feel more like a Tesla, but you know, you have to think about what does your audience want your brand to feel like too, though? And if they're not expecting a Tesla and they're expecting a Volvo, that's a little more polished and refined and, you know, safe and, you know, not quite as, uh, leading edge and, you know, whose CEO is tweeting about Dogecoin, then <laughs> like, you know, you have to kind of take that into, into account. And so I think kind of that's like probably the hardest thing for us sometimes is thinking about what is, who is our true audience and how do we kind of get into their mindset and kind of think about the brand from their perspective as something that's going to appeal to them and kind of speak to them while also, you know, pushing the boundaries a little bit too, though, because we do want to build a brand that's that is memorable. And if kind of you just fall right into place with exactly what they expect, then it's not quite as memorable. And so there's a, there's a fine line there. And we have, so my kind of counterpart here that I work with on the brand process is our VP of design, John Hubbard here at High Alpha. And we have a brand design team of designers that sits under him as well, that kind of works alongside us through this whole process. And there are some of the, they are the most talented visual and brand designers that, you know, I've ever worked with or met. And so it makes um, my job very, very easy, at least to kind of get to work <laughs> with their team and how just intentional and thoughtful they are while working within kind of the tight constraints we have and being able to just produce, you know, just amazing brands that, you know, not only is it thoughtful, intentional and incredible kind of creative work, but kind of takes into account all of the strategy work we've done up, you know, up to date around with a company that has to do with who is our audience and why are they purchasing this product and what is the true value they're trying to get out of this product. And, you know, it's easy to kind of come up with really creative brands or logo marks that, you know, that you could get behind and be like, yeah, I love that. And, you know, that's going to be our company logo, but it's incredibly difficult to come up with something that we can all rally behind and and love is and is incredibly creative that also gets the job done, you know, in terms of kind of what the brand is really supposed to do. And so I find that to be, you know, one of the most challenging parts probably of our job and where we, you know, work so closely with the CEO and kind of defining that. And especially at this early stage, a lot of it sometimes is still very undefined. And so we're trying to kind of figure that out together and trying to make a lot of best guesses and, and kind of come out at, the best place we can. You talked a little bit too around, you know, a company going after the enterprise like early on. And so I think, you know, it's very, very tactically. So when we start to kind of see those signs and think about it, we're like, oh, this is, this is more of a kind of an enterprise company. I think, you know, we start to think too, even just how does that impact the website we build and what pages are on the website and just like little things, even like, yes, every company, every website should have a privacy policy in terms of service like from day one, but they're going to care even more about 
those and like is there support on the website even if it just links out to a support at email alias but like there's just kind of small things like that and how do you kind of build the website in order to kind of tailor more to that audience and kind of thinking about it's going to be a buyer's committee you know of people that are going to be buying it so it's not all just going to be kind of the same persona but how do you answer the questions that the whole committee is going to have without having to kind of actually answer to them you know because we don't want them to run the whole strategy for the website or kind of like be beholden to whoever this you know specific buyer persona within an organ within an enterprise organization that isn't truly kind of the the person that's going to be receiving the value like we don't want them to dictate the whole kind of strategy for our marketing or kind of the website but how do we address their concerns easily and quickly and we think about that often in terms of how does that impact the brand we create, the website we create, our messaging, and the campaigns we're doing as well. So talk to me a little bit about launch strategy. We have a couple of like competing ideologies around stealth mode, which is very, I guess maybe was more prominent in the past. And then we have things today like build in public and, you know, launching earlier, the better, even like, you know, as Reed Hoffman, you said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product then you've launched too late how do you think about launch strategy you mentioned a little bit before maybe we could start with kind of just uh method and then a little bit later more to kind of tactics around events and you know press release versus just you know twitter yeah i am i'm a big fan of having a big launch you know quote unquote event and mainly just because i love the idea of just forcing functions in a company. And it's even less about the press or the kind of marketing around the company launch as much as it is just around like what the impact of that kind of event as a forcing function for the entire business has on the company, whether it's morale, momentum. I I just find that to be so impactful in a business, especially in the early stages that I'm always kind of pushing our CEOs to kind of think of their launch, you know, as just bigger than they originally thought and kind of bigger than just a company launch and kind of put all of the wood behind kind of that arrow and kind of use it as a bottleneck. Because I think when you kind of have all of, when you create a bottleneck and you put all that pressure there, you're just able to see kind of better results on the other side. And so I don't think, though, that, that is synonymous with always needing to be in stealth mode, though, or is that synonymous with not selling until the company launch? Like we, you know, our philosophy is you start selling from day one. And Egan Montgomery on our team, who is our director of go-to-market and works really closely in kind of sales and demand gen side of things with our companies, you know, he has a saying that, the best learning is done with a customer and that founders should start selling way before they even have a product just because we need to be learning about, you know, what this true problem is we're trying to sell into. How can we really, you know, solve for it? And sometimes it looks like we're selling solutions, you know, and services more than even a software product in the early days. Hmm. And that's perfectly fine because we're learning about how, our audiences want to buy these products. What are the true kind of values that they need? And, but the truth of it is you don't need a final brand or polished website to be able to sell that either. And so that's where kind of, we push our companies is like, you know, start 
just having conversations with buyers and trying to sell something. The the small, you know, kind of thinking of the MVP in the loosest terms possible, which I think, you know, Eric Reese would, would, would say this too in terms, you know, when he started kind of talking about the concept in the lean startup, that you're trying to kind of test assumptions and that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a product. It can be, you know, mechanical Turk of you doing something or, or sir can look more like services, but you're just kind of trying to test assumptions of would people pay for X to be solved or for something that does, you know, Y. And so, you know, we try to start kind of figuring that out from day one. And I think kind of our team on the brand side, as we're learning more about those buyers and about, you know, what the market really looks like out there, kind of trying to, uh, digest all of that learning as we're going through the brand process and make sure that it kind of gets into the work we're doing around building the brand and building, you know, the company identity and their first kind of marketing website. But then my kind of view is once we start to have, you know, a handful of customers and can tell a kind of compelling story, even if, you know, a company launch is not newsworthy to be honest you know but like how can we like almost manufacture news around it and i think also that the bigger deal that you make about something the bigger deal that other people also make about it and so that's where like i think of like the value in having kind of a bigger company launch and making a big deal out of it just means that other people are also going to make a bigger deal out of it and so that's why i'm kind of a fan of like using your company launch as a forcing function for product roadmap, for getting customers, for getting, you know, customer approvals for quotes, or just being able to name that you have these public customers. And so I just think it acts as this kind of momentum builder in the business where I don't think kind of the iterative build in public approach is, is necessary. Like, I, I don't think that they are mutually exclusive though, either. Like I do think there's a lot of value from, community building and just kind of being more open, transparent kind of in that approach has just really like kind of taken off, I feel like, over the past couple of years and kind of the the creators economy becoming just much bigger than, you know, artistic creators. And now it's, it's entrepreneurs are creators too. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's so much value in that, but I think too, that there's, that e- even in that kind of space, you can, you can make a bigger deal about kind of how, how do you find forcing functions still in the company and kind of build momentum around them and just kind of make those as a bottleneck for your business. And I think you'll just see that the, the impact on kind of the other side to be just phenomenal. Yeah. What I'm curious what your, your thoughts are on the actual tactics for, for launching, you know, what the playbook looks like. Is it just sending out the email and, you know, posting a couple of tweets? Is it doing a live stream? Is it hosting some sort of uh, event in person somewhere? If you can, how does it, depend like what are the nuances compared to different companies and what they're what market they're in yeah i I think i think that's the answer is that there are nuances and it depends a little bit based on the market they're in who they sell to and kind of what their audience is i think you know we've done everything from launching a company at the major uh trade show event to uh a small kind of private launch party at a music venue here in Indianapolis to just kind of putting out a press release and, you know, email blasts and things like that to kind of more groundswell of kind of getting influencers and people in kind of our network to kind of share about it. I think the, the, the main kind of 
deciding factor is more who who is the audience and kind of who do we who do we need to know more about this company you know and is it chief information security officers buying cyber insurance um, is a much different audience than a company that could essentially sell to anyone and is more of a productivity tool then you know then we're looking at a much bigger kind of broader campaign and less less surgical in our approach of who we want to target and I, I think that's kind of like the biggest thing is just kind of matching the audience to the channel but our kind of and then we have like our standard kind of playbook and it's you know utilizing all of the you know audience audiences that high alpha has kind of built up over the years you know we have a subscriber list called our high alpha betas like newsletter list that kind of is just specifically interested in learning about new company launches or companies that are going in beta and they want kind of early access to and so you know, we've started to kind of build up specific audiences that are more interested in high alpha company launches that will make sure we're messaging things to along with kind of building out a press release you know the that's even we could go on a tangent on that itself of like the the value of writing that first press release is is so so incredibly high and please do like yeah it it kind of helps just narrow your your kind of messaging and you know talk about kind of a messaging workshop is one of the best ways to do, go through that is just to write a press release around your company launch around like a funding event and kind of have to figure out what's the the one line description we use to, to describe ourselves in the headline and that is incredibly powerful. So, so you know, we'll we'll kind of run a press playbook with media outreach that that my team runs um, in kind of conjunction with the company, and then you know, kind of a handful of kind of email outreach as well to kind of owned audiences, and then you know, kind of sprinkle in the, the specific kind of flavor of campaigns and kind of company launch you know initiatives that have to do with that particular audience that they're trying to sell into. I love that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Well, I'd love to get into some of that, that press and, uh, and messaging as a, as a forcing function, like you mentioned before as well. But I'm also curious too, just to get your honest take on a lot of PR being driven around fundraising. Do you think that there's, you know, like what's like a viable sort of PR strategy that doesn't involve fundraising or, or some sort of funding event? Yeah, I, that's a tough one, I think. And just because the media landscape today is just continuing to change rapidly, even like when I first started doing this at least six years ago today, it's it's changed dramatically. And what constitutes as a newsworthy funding round even is dramatically changing based on how big the, sounds, the size of the round is and if you're going to share your valuation or not. And quite frankly, being based in Indianapolis and our company is kind of being based here instead of the instead of the Bay Area, you know, puts us a little bit at a disadvantage even too if you're not in one of the major markets like in New York or San Francisco. And so I think kind of you definitely have to think strategically around not just we raise some money, but how do we make this valuable? I think kind of, you know, the 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 three or four big buckets that I think about of like what what is something that's, you know, quote unquote newsworthy to media. And you have to think about just because you think that it's important or valuable to your business, you have to think about it from the reporter's perspective of like, who is their audience they're writing to and what would make this interesting to them. And the fact of the matter is usually a company launch or even like a seed funding round, it's probably not going to be that, you know, that, that interesting or, you know, life altering to their audience. And so you have to kind of think about it 
of you have to find other ways as well to kind of make news release stories. So I think, you know, fundraising is one of those kind of four core buckets that are tend to be inherently newsworthy, though that's getting more challenging every day. I think key hires, and again, these are different reporters and different publications that are going to care about these things in different audiences. But, you know, when you bring on a new C-suite hire, a VP hire, especially kind of give who, what they're, depending on what their background is prior to joining your startup, I think that can be sometimes newsworthy. I think kind of product announcements tend to not be newsworthy, but I think kind of they're important still in terms of how they position the company and they tend to be more valuable for like a trade publication audience. And, you know, TechCrunch is never, unless you are Slack or Microsoft, TechCrunch is never going to pick up your new product launch. But, you know, if you sell into CIOs or chief information security officers and kind of going into like a CIO.com or a CIO review or something that's a more trade publication, um, and you have an interesting point of view around like your product launch, like those are going to be much more valuable placements for your news even than TechCrunch would be anyway, though that's kind of what people view as like the holy grail and what's the only thing that's worth anything. So, so I think kind of you just have to think broader about like what's valuable and how's this going to bring kind of impact back. I do think kind of product announcements when they're tied to like another company, like integrations are interesting where like it mm. might not be newsworthy, but there's a lot of there's so much nuance in like the business value that these also kind of speak because the your announcements and your news cadence also is important to like investors. You know, one of the first places a lot of investors will go to is like your news page and they just want to see like the momentum in the business, not even like, did you get great coverage, but like, are you doing exciting and important things on a regular cadence or is it clear even by your news cycle that like you're stalling out as a business? And so I think, you know, there's so many other kind of nuances and then you announcing a partnership with a large kind of tech company also, you know, ties your brand to Salesforce or, you know, Microsoft or whoever you're announcing a partnership with, even though like that's not newsworthy in itself. It's kind of that brand credibility and it helps with employer branding and attracting great talent. And so there's just a lot of kind of downstream effects as well of news that aren't necessarily kind of come to mind immediately that I think are important. And I think kind of growing in popularity too is that, you know, PR is also not just around news, but it's also like, how can we build up internal, internal employees as thought leaders? And, you know, if we, if the, the news announcements are not newsworthy that we're kind of releasing, kind of figure out ways that you can and what kind of expertise do you have in your company that you can share through like op-eds and contributed articles that are also just as kind of important and valuable for the company? Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Given your experience, I, I sort of have a, a similar perspective for when I was at Metrics, getting a lot of exposure to different companies, but given your experience with high alpha and seeing so many companies be able to follow along sort of what their journey, what they're working on, and also being an active part of it. What do you see is quote unquote working right now for, you know, mainly you're working with B2B SaaS companies. Like what are kind of the, uh, the tried and true strategies uh, that you see often? And maybe some, what are the maybe other, you know, cutting edge kind of nuanced ones that are working for specific companies? Yeah, I, the, the cop-out answer is like this varies so much like from company to company and it's more kind of particular to 
like the audience, you know, and as to what's going to, what's going to work really well. I continue just to be very bullish though, around content for like all companies. I think there's a, you know, content should be core to kind of every marketing program, no matter who your buyer is, they, you know, want to learn and be inspired by something. And, you know, most of the time when I sit down with a company and they're like, Hey, we're not, you know, our conversion rate is terrible on the website or we're not generating enough traffic. The first thing I go to is, you know, what is your content cadence like and how much content you're publishing and who's the audience and, you know, how are you, how are you distributing that as well? And kind of, how are you building up owned audiences? And usually there's, there's not much kind of going on there. And so I think kind of, I still see that to be a pretty kind of tried and true with, you know, the vast majority of our companies, I think, you know, there's different playbooks within that, that, you know, companies that have started podcasts really early on, like Casted, which is one of our companies that is a podcast, uh, podcast marketing software platform. So it obviously makes sense that, you know, their first marketing uh, campaign would be launching a podcast, but we have another company called The Juice that also, you know, pod, starting a podcast is one of the first things that they launched. And I'm obviously kind of a fan of podcasting, but that's been one that I've seen kind of work to to a fair degree with, with, with folks as well. And then I'm also kind of pretty bullish, I would say, these days on organic search and SEO as well. And I often recommend it to companies that I think, you know, organic search is one of, you know, two or three, I think, compounding marketing channels that you have in a business, meaning that when I'm running AdWords campaigns and Facebook ads, like Facebook and Google don't care what I paid yesterday or how much I paid with them to date to acquire that customer, that lead or that click. It's going to cost me the same, you know, market rate today to acquire that click again, where organic search, you start every month with all of the work that you've done to date, you know what I mean? You're just kind of building on that. And so you aren't starting from zero every month. And so I find, you know, that kind of compounding interest on your SEO work to be incredibly valuable. And I think you can never start too early and, you know, kind of the, you know, the best time to start thinking about it was yesterday and the second best time is today kind of thing. So I oftentimes recommend that companies think strategically about how to drive growth through organic search. And then even, you know, one of our newest portfolio companies, a company called Demandwell is kind of squarely in the space. And I think part of, you know, we were a customer of Demandwell as many of our companies were a customer of Demandwell as, as an agency and saw a lot of success working with them that we kind of decided, hey, there's there's a there there and we should turn this into a software platform. And so uh, that's kind of how much I believe in it, I guess, today that we decided to start it, one of our new companies all around that space. But I do really think that, there's a there's an arbitrage opportunity there too right now. I think a lot of marketers have either deprioritized SEO because it's been a black box for the past six, seven years or something where it kind of it's had its heyday. And so I do think that there's, I think the people who are kind of thinking about it again and putting investment in that area are seeing kind of some massive returns because there's a lot of people that aren't anymore. I don't know if that'll change over the next, you know, two, three years, but that's one of the things that I'm kind of recommending to a lot of folks again more recently. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Like, SEO is one of those, like you said, one of the only ones that gets recurring traffic, uh, compounding effect. Is there anything like weird or that's like working surprisingly well that you have like a case study or kind of example that you could, that you could share? One of my favorite, I would say like campaigns, oh, you know, over the past six years is one of our early, one of our very first, one of our very first kind of portfolio companies 
was a company called Sigster, and they did email signature marketing. So kind of from a brand perspective, keeping all of your signature banners at the bottom of your entire company's kind of emails, keeping those unified and on brand, and then also being able to embed a campaign kind of image at the bottom of emails in order to drive, you know, awareness around a campaign you're running or, you know, leads or kind of customer campaigns and everything too. And they were acquired by Terminus probably about 18 months ago, actually. And so now they're kind of just part of the larger Terminus organization. But for a while, Sixter had this amazing just content campaign around what if blank had email signatures and it was always some kind of um, pop culture reference. So what if Parks and Rec characters had email signatures? What if, you know, Marvel villains had, had email signatures? What if Star Wars characters had email signatures and just kind of had the, the most clever, funny email signatures just in these, in these blog posts? And they would do phenomenally well. And they weren't like selling the Sixer product in any way, but in a space too where they were trying to kind of educate the market on like why a cohesive branded uh, email signature mattered and like what you could do with it. It was so brilliant. And there's a, there's a guy over there, Brad Butler, who runs their content programs now. And he was kind of the, the, had the, the original idea for it and has kind of kept it up. I think they just launched another one under the Terminus brand, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago on their blog. And that's one that I always kind of point to is just fun and on brand and just a very clever kind of unique way. And I think kind of broadly in thinking about maybe your content programs and campaigns is just kind of what, what can we do to kind of help educate the market, but also kind of not take ourselves too seriously sometimes and just, you know, have fun with it. And those, those are some, those are the things sometimes that well, if they're still on brand that, people actually want to engage with and you know i've never seen more like applause for a blog post or a marketing campaign than what i see <laughs> for those those images and so you know and how much people share them and stuff it's it's pretty fun but that's one that i would say is on a little quirky maybe that is just it's had huge success and and i like i love when they put out another another episode in that kind of series of email signature banners from famous people or you know celebrities and things I love that example. Yeah, that's fantastic. One of the things I wanted to get your take on was there's sort of like this tension between what I, what I would call being very data driven and you know kind of like a quant right versus being being very intuitive and creative and just kind of like going for maybe like fun ideas like this right with Sixers email campaign. Where where do you fall on that spectrum? You know, is there, is there a balance? Do you, do you lean towards one way more towards the other? Because with marketing, at the end of the day, you want to prove that something is working, right? But where do you start? Do you start with the data or do you start with more of your conviction? Yeah, I, I struggle with this. I feel like even personally all the time, I would say I personally am more of a data-driven marketer, honestly, even though I sit over more brand projects and a ton of like creative projects and things we do and I'm responsible for that. I, I tend to just be a lot more analytical thinker. I overanalyze and overthink everything. I'm a control freak, very detail-oriented, very organized. Math, even in school, was always like my best subject, though I like hated it. Like I always took like the 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 lowest level math course that I could in order, you know, to get the grades, but I would have a absolutely ridiculous grade in it. But I was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything more than like the bare minimum on this kind of side of things. And so it's kind of funny because I it's always come natural to me and I tend to be very 
numbers oriented and, and thinking about things as a process and always, you know, even when it wasn't my job, I always wanted to kind of dig into the data and know where our leads coming from and understand Salesforce campaigns and how to pull reports and how to understand true kind of, you know, lead source attribution. And when I was at Salesforce, we had a incredibly complex attribution model and actually we had multiple of them. Uh, depending on kind of what metric you wanted to measure. And it, it was kind of funny because very quickly I became probably the only person in the team that even really understood the terminology and kind of was interested in it. But I think that there's something to be said for like understanding that also just made me so much more valuable to the team too. And I think it has had a major impact on like my success, I would say, or what, what little success maybe I've had as like a marketer today has been because I've been able to kind of understand the data side of things and know why it's important and kind of translate that back oftentimes to the rest of my team or to others on, you know, cross-functional teams or up to leadership. And so to me, I tend to think that there's like a baseline kind of data level of like awareness that you need. But, you know, even when I think about hiring people on my team and at our portfolio companies, one of the biggest things I look for is even more so than like that data understanding is like an ability to write and write effectively too. And so I would kind of even slightly notch, you know, and and being a great writer is also not synonymous with a creative or intuitive thinker too, or it it may be an intuitive thinker, but not like a creative, you know, outside of the box kind of marketing kind of side of things. But I think being an amazing writer is even more of a more important kind of skill maybe that I look for. It just conveys incredible critical thinking skills, I think, and problem solving even as well. And especially if like someone's able to condense really big, meaty, important topics into simple, plain language, that is just a one of a kind skill that I find it very, very hard to find. And I struggle with and I'm not that great at it. Though, you know, I try to kind of continually get better at it. So I would say like, if I try to think of the the data versus intuition and versus kind of creativity side of side of marketing, I am more on kind of the data and then kind of intuitive side, though constantly stretching to kind of think bigger and think more outside of the box and take bigger swings. Because I know that my kind of analytical brain is never going to be so swing so far to the other side of the pendulum that I'm going to come up with something that's just unrealistic. And so I don't think that there's anything I could think of that's like too creative basically. And so I continue mm. to kind of push myself there and be able to kind of blend the two, but I'm definitely a little more on the data side. Yeah. Yeah. That makes good sense. One of the questions I've been kind of experimenting with starting to wrap up here is about a recent purchase to kind of do like a reverse you know, jobs to be done, customer journey kind of interview. Any recent purchase that'd be interesting to talk through? Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this beforehand and I had shared with Corey that I bought my first pair of Allbirds last week, actually. And I feel like I'm kind of a little late to this party and have <laughs> admired the Allbirds brand for a very long time and kind of finally pulled the trigger and pulled the trigger last week. I would say it's kind of interesting, like I, being in tech, I feel like the, that brand popped up pretty early with, I would say like early adopters, you know, those who aren't familiar, Allbirds is a shoe brand. They kind of pride themselves on natural materials and great for the environment. And also their first shoe was a wool shoe that was very unique, could wear it without socks, incredibly comfortable. And I want to say they're based in the Bay Area 
potentially, but mm-hmm. I actually have no idea. But they were very big, I feel like, in the, the, the tech community pretty early on, at least maybe it's like where they saw a lot of traction. And so I feel like I've seen them around our offices at least for the past like four or five years. And I've always admired them as tennis shoes and as though I, I need a new pair of tennis shoes. And so I, my brother-in-law actually, I was at a, a track meet for my other brother-in-law who's a senior in high school a couple of weeks ago and we were sitting on the bleachers and he had a relatively new pair of Allbirds and that kind of reminded me as I was thinking about shoes that I should revisit Allbirds and think about getting a pair and yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I can't think of like the, the purchase path from there, but the, I would say to me, what I love about the shoe though too is more the simplicity in the design and that's, there's just like not much branding on the shoe too, which I like love. And so that's where I was like really admired kind of them and wanted a pair. Ended up getting a smaller size though. And so I am going to have to exchange these shoes though. Talk about kind of good, just a good like brand experience. You know, everything is, everything is marketing and everything is a brand. And even like their exchange process was incredibly simple and, you know, got them on Saturday and I'm going to drop them off at USPS here today to kind of exchange them. So I would say kind of, you know, thinking even back to the marketing side of things that everything that a consumer experiences with your brand impacts, you know, the affinity that they have for you and kind of what they think about your company and your brand. I remember even two and a half years ago going to a physical Allbirds store actually in New York City and just loving the like aesthetic of the store actually with my wife because she wanted to try on a pair and had not really much interest at the time even, but just kind of that experience for a, for a company that was a D2C brand all online. So like going to a physical store was like pretty unique. And so that's just kind of had part of the, you know, uniqueness and I just added to the brand. And I think I loved it. And I start to see kind of D to C brands and online retail brands starting to do that now and kind of how they're able to use, because, you know, it's always been done the other way around, you know, for as long as we've known so far and like all these D to C brands that are now kind of starting to think backward of how could we build the in-person kind of experience is secondary and is all just about the experience and is not about efficiency, you know what I mean? And what every other kind of retail storefront like cares about. And it's all just about the experience uh, in the store and kind of the consumer. And I, I love it. Experience is king. You said it yourself. One of my final questions that I like to that I like to ask to, to guests is, to take a peek into your personal swipe file, as it were. Just get in your head on, you know, what does Drew think are some worthy marketing examples, campaigns, billboards, landing pages, ads. Can you walk me through a few of your favorites, just, you know, top of mind or things you find interesting? Yeah, one one of my absolute favorites that I share often with our companies and I have it in a, a deck that I present sometimes too and kind of talking about messaging and positioning, but it's from Box, which is a publicly traded publicly traded file sharing and kind of storage and data enterprise kind of solution now. But at the time, they were a young startup. I want to say this was probably in like 2010. They put up a billboard along the, the 101 interstate in San Francisco. This is before they were known as going back to domains. This is before they owned Box.com. 
And so mm-hmm. they went by box.net. And so they have this billboard. I think if you just Google like box is not like SharePoint billboard, you'll probably find it. But they had this billboard up that they put on the freeway that like the line was simple. It was just box.net is like SharePoint, but without the servers, the setup costs, manuals, downtime, firewall restrictions, migraines, permission issues, three-year development cycles, <laughs> hardware maintenance, storage limitations, backups, VPN, and it goes on and on. Hair loss. That's funny. And I just, I've absolutely loved that. Like, it's just a masterclass in positioning. I think it's a masterclass in a young startup, like how you anchor to an incumbent, like SharePoint, you know, like a Microsoft and Box was this no one at the time. But because you were thinking about them in comparison with SharePoint and not in comparison with Dropbox and all of the ankle biters that were like file sharing, it was just, it's genius because you thought of them at a completely different level. He thought of them as like an enterprise solution, but then they also kind of had all these differentiators. So beyond just like the cleverness of the billboard, I thought it was very intentional as they called out SharePoint and just how they did it. And absolutely love it. I use that as an example. Oftentimes. It's a great one. Yeah. Salesforce too. I use often as an example though, you know, clearly I'm biased because I worked there for a while, but something I like to tell people to share too, especially around your messaging and positioning and just how important kind of repetition is and how, getting just everyone on the same page and saying the same thing and that, you know, you get tired of your message much, much sooner than the market ever does. You know, they won't remember what you said yesterday, even though you feel like you're just repeating yourself, but it's so important to just kind of repeat your message and kind of that repetition is what just cements it in people's mind, but then also just like truly makes your messaging kind of powerful one of my greatest examples of this is Salesforce in their Dreamforce keynote. I think ever since back at like 2005 or 2006, when they like first started Dreamforce, more or less like the first five, six, seven slides of their keynote presentation are the exact same story. It's just redesigned slides. And you can kind of look at just this change and the evolution like every single year. But the story they've been telling since 2005 about this you know transformation in the industry from on-prem software to cloud is the same story and kind of the divide between you and your customer because of that and how they bridge the gap and i just think it's just even watching kind of mark benioke give a dreamforce keynote is just a master class in kind of storytelling and kind of around specifically that idea of like repetition and you know the salesforce brand and kind of positioning is so cemented And I think that that repetition and kind of them using the same kind of story arc and basically the same five slides to open up every single keynote every year, just redesigned a little bit is, is kind of just testament to like the the power of that repetition. They're they're the Kings of that for sure. I've seen that time. And again, with the storytelling and the the sort of shift in the market, the transformation in the industry, uh, fantastic case study. Final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot about some of the things I said early on around just how marketing, marketing is everywhere. But then even like kind of personally within a business to me that the boundaries of, you know, what our jobs are, marketers are so gray and that you should be thinking about how your position and how the work that you do in marketing impacts the overall business strategy. And I think that you're in a place as a marketer to have a real impact on that. And I think, you know, run to fires and be kind of uncomfortable. And I think kind of being in marketing is 
one of the most fun jobs in a startup or in any company because you have some flexibility there and your kind of role really can be whatever you make it to be. And so, I don't know, that's kind of when you say everything is marketing. I think a lot, I think back to kind of that and how, you know, why I love what I do today is because it's a lot more than marketing and you have to think about how everything from your news announcements and the press release and what's on our website impacts a lot more than just are we bringing in new pipeline and helping close customers and helping people uh, stay loyal to the brand. But it's everything from, you know, are we attracting talent and helping investors kind of see the story that we're building here easily as well. And there's just so much kind of to unpack there. And I think thinking about everything, you know, in the company is marketing and it's your job as a marketer to you know, figure out the best way to kind of impact the, the business holistically. Very well said. Drew, thanks so much for coming on and sharing everything today. Yeah, this is a blast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Drew for coming on the show and being so transparent. Make sure to check out the High Alpha Betas newsletter if you want to be the first to know what they're working on and even try out the new products that they're working on. And as always, if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for sharing everything today and let him know what you learned as well. To wrap up here, here are a few of my takeaways. Number one, marketing is the sum of all the experiences with a person or company, and brand is the reputation and feeling that results in the sum of those experiences. Number two, reduce the number of things people need to remember about you to make yourself more memorable and referenceable. An easy to pronounce and spell name, a simple domain, and unique branding will pay dividends for years. And three, launching is a forcing function. It acts both as a constraint to get something out the door and also helps you think bigger than you might have originally thought. Make a big deal about it and other people will make a big deal about it as well. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.